Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and this is the New Book and Sociology podcast, a channel on New Books Network. And today I have Dr. Kevin T. Smiley on the show to discuss his book, Market Cities, People Cities, The Shape of Our Urban Future, published by New York University Press. Kevin T. Smiley is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at University at Buffalo. Kevin earned a PhD in sociology from Rice University in 2017. He is an environmental and urban sociologist. He analyzes inequalities and exposure to industrial air pollution across neighborhoods and metropolitan areas in the United States. He also researches the city of Copenhagen, Denmark, and Houston, Texas, with particular interest in urban development, public space, climate change, and immigration. Thank you again, Dr. Smiley, for joining us uh, today on New Books and Sociology. Yeah, thank you for having me, Michael. Uh, It's great to be here. So to start off, uh, could you tell me a little bit about uh, what inspired you to write Market Cities, People Cities, The Shape of Our Urban Future? Yeah, as far as what really inspired us when uh, uh, my co-author, Michael Emerson, and I were sitting down to write uh, Market Cities, People Cities, before there was even really a kernel of an idea, we were just struck time and time again about the differences between these two cities we were starting to study. Uh, And so... Each of us at that time was based at Rice University, uh, and we had conducted and been a part of uh, survey research of the city. Uh, Michael, my co-author, has deep research roots in the city. And uh, and then each of us had the opportunity uh, to travel to Copenhagen, Denmark, um, uh, him to do some teaching, uh, uh, me as a visiting graduate student. uh, And we were struck immediately by just how different it was. And so this very simplistic observation about how uh, contrasting these two cities were ended up being sort of the foundation from which uh, we proceeded with our entire perspective. Uh, So sort of using that almost, you might think of it as an inductive approach, um, uh, uh, sort of gave us the, the entryway into thinking about these two cities because uh, we feel like, um, uh, of a lot of the research in urban studies and urban sociology and beyond uh, is analyzing these, uh, is analyzing city after city and often finding similar trends across a lot of cities. But the ways in which cities are dealing with uh, these trends can vary markedly. And we think that Houston and Copenhagen especially uh, constitute two very different ways of dealing with that. And so we were, we were really struck by the contrast uh, because we think it tells us something about the heterogeneity in cities in the 21st century at a time when other folks might be thinking that cities are becoming more and more homogeneous. Uh, we're arguing that, that cities are trying to excel um, in their own ways and that that can happen in, in dramatically different fashions. So um, yeah, so that was really a big starting point for the book for us was just um the differences we were seeing across our surveys, the differences we were seeing as we talked to people one-on-one uh, in depth, as we uh, just even in our own lived experiences in the city as well. 
Excellent. So could you give me an outline as to what a, a market city is? What do you uh, identify as being a market city and some characteristics of it? Yeah. When we think about a market city, we're thinking about a city that is comparatively individually oriented. So it's got this sort of individualistic mantra that underlies the culture of the city. Um, this relates in important ways to a couple other uh, facets. Uh, first, we think of a market city as having uh, comparatively uh, less centralized and less strong governance systems. So maybe there's not a lot of co cooperation across the metropolitan area. Uh, maybe uh, the extent of the sort of things that, um, that government has control over is relatively limited. Um, and so instead, uh, much of the work of governance is left to private sector or public-private actors. Um, so that's another part is sort of uh, less strong governance systems. And then third, uh, market cities are also characterized by greater inequalities, um, social inequalities um, in terms of uh, uh, economic inequalities across the city, in terms of uh, racial inequalities across the city. Uh, that was one of the things that really struck us about market cities. So it sort of comes back to those three aspects. Um, comparatively weak governance, comparatively high social inequalities, and a sort of individualistic culture. And we call it a market city because we think that the sort of free market mantra is, is what really courses through those three uh, elements there. Um, and we, we found that... Um, that Houston matches much of what we uh, 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 saw in terms of the market city. By contrast, a lot of what we were seeing in the people city was uh, different than that. Uh, and so in a people city, uh, we see a really a collective orientation in terms of uh, just the way people think um, uh, culturally. And so people are more trusting. Uh, they're more likely to be uh, civically active, things like that. There's also a strong governance system. Um, strong metropolitan governance in terms of uh, inter-municipal uh, cooperation across uh, regional, uh, across the, the whole metropolitan region. Uh, so there's really this strong governance system that's part of it too. And then the third part is that there's comparatively low social inequalities. So that's uh, another part of it too. And that is in fact, not just um, uh, uh, an accident, but a fundamental part of the design. Uh, insofar as people cities uh, want to try to keep social inequalities as low uh, as they can. And so, um, and, and finally, we, we sort of think of Copenhagen as an ideal typical um, uh, people city. And so sort of situating the people city and the market city along the spectrum in Houston and Copenhagen as about as close to the ends of that spectrum as we could probably find out in the uh, uh, post-industrial world today uh, gives us a real sense of, um, of uh, the dynamics that we think are occurring in cities today. Uh, and that, um, that heterogeneity I, I spoke a little bit about earlier is really expressed through that governance. It's expressed through that inequality. It's expressed just how people think in the local culture too. Excellent. So this theory, this concept, as it comes into play, as you walk through, drive through cities, what are some what are some real characteristics in the infrastructure and the way that the city is designed to um, be able to look back and reflect and say, oh, this is definitely a market city or this is definitely a people city? 
Yeah. Uh, and so I'll, I'll take your words there, uh, thinking about what distinguishes the infrastructure and land use in the cities, uh, because that is at the core of much of what we talk about. We don't think the built environment is deterministic of people's behavior necessarily or anything like that. But the ways in which, but the places in which we live do have a fundamental effect on us. And so um, in particular, uh, you know, you sort of mentioned walking or taking a car. Uh, in uh, the very first chapter of our book, we sort of sketch uh, in uh, a sort of introduction to the cities and uh, by taking a journey in each city. And one of the, the things that really jumps out uh, in uh, these sort of journeys that we took is that in Houston, the journey is in a car. In Copenhagen, it's on a bicycle. Uh, and that's not uh, by personal preference. That's by uh, statistical um, artifact. The modal um, transportation type in each city uh, is, is a car in Houston where uh, eight out of 10 people uh, drive alone uh, to work. And in Copenhagen, uh, about half of people are commuting on a bicycle these days. Uh, so that's the modal type there. Um, and so the end result is even just before you get to the infrastructure, what you are taking through the infrastructure varies. Uh, in Copenhagen, and I think in, in most people's cities, we would see um, a comparatively dense infrastructure. And so there's going to be uh, especially an emphasis on mixed uses, the idea that you can use modes other than a car to get to your everyday and your daily round, stores, schools, um, things of this nature. Um, and uh, particularly an eye for design. And so that these places are uh, um, championed by uh, urban design that seeks to sort of uh, promote people uh, at every single turn and people's use of that space. Uh, by comparison, a market city is going to have uh, is likely to be less dense. Uh, market cities are probably characterized by sprawl. Um, um, there are often going to have uh, more highways and things like that. Uh, and really, one of the core purposes behind land use in a market city is the pursuit of profit. Is the pursuit. Uh, is thinking of land as a commodity and thinking of how to make the most money off of that commodity. Um, so um, that is a critical and important part uh, of the story is just how do you fundamentally think about land? And so proceeding from important books within urban sociology, like urban fortunes, uh, we know that people, that land is itself a commodity and in both Houston and Copenhagen, uh, are, nest, are nested within a, a wider capitalist economic system. And so, in fact, both are um, thinking of land as a commodity. But in Houston, uh, it's taken to its sort of full logical extent. Uh, whereas in Copenhagen, there's trying to be a, a balance between that reality that land is, in fact, uh, a commodity versus the sort of use values and everyday daily round attributes and how people attach themselves to place that are core in thinking about the urban design of those. And the end result is, um, is, uh, is that both places look really, really different. And so subsuming these under the same uh, concept uh, struck us as, uh, um, as, uh, as something that we could improve on by thinking about these distinctions between market cities and people cities, because both, uh, cities do end up looking very, very different uh, in in their ter in their lived experience and in this infrastructure, in particular.
And one of the things that I want to bring out in this interview is that uh, you make a note to say that not one is better than the other or worse than the other. But in fact, the uh, general public uh, response is that they have a, a pretty much enjoyable time in, in either location. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that uh, struck us uh, in particular is uh, people like where they live, uh, by and large. Partic- and, and in this case, we mean the city. Uh, which they live. So they like to live in Houston. They like to live in Copenhagen. We even dipped into uh, data on nearly 80 cities in Europe um, using survey data um, uh, from a survey conducted by the European Union. Um, And we found that uh, by and large, uh, in almost every single city of those 80 cities, at least three out of four, often eight out of 10 or four out of five, sometimes nine out of 10, uh, people said, yeah, I'm satisfied with my city. I like the city that I live in. And so one of the things uh, that we stress time and time again is um, is although we're trying to raise critical questions about both types of cities and often more critical questions about the market city, uh, we want to really underscore the point um, that uh, that people do like to live in both cities, that both cities are uh, economically uh, doing comparatively fine. Both are uh, global cities um, that uh, are of some repute. So th- there's really it's it's not that that one is necessarily on the up and up um, uh, versus the other. Uh, so uh, while we do think that there are a lot more market cities than people cities in the world right now, um, it's it's not to suggest that. Uh, um, that people definitely enjoy one more than the other or are more satisfied with one more than the other. Um, in fact, the data just doesn't bear that out. Most people like where they live. So we can't talk about uh, market cities and people cities without getting into the environmental implications that can be had by the built design of the market city and the built design of the, uh, of the more rural people city. Uh, maybe it's not necessarily rural, but uh, uh, that's what I think of when I think of people cities. But what environmental implications are had by the way in which the city is designed? Yeah, and so when we're thinking about uh, the environmental implications of cities, we're talking about a very serious issue. In uh, environmental sociology, there is a good deal of discussion about the contradictions of cities. And so some uh, will argue that our cities are here to save us, that Uh, by sort of living more densely and coming together, um, uh, that innovation may happen because people are sort of smushed up against one another in cities, that that cities could be uh, sort of uh, helpful in building a more sustainable future. Um, But uh, much of the data, especially those marshaled by environmental sociologists, sort of point the other direction, that our cities are full of contradictions. Uh, They require Uh, immense resources, uh, often extracted from um, places in the hinterlands uh, and far away from cities, uh, and that cities are um, uh, uh, not necessarily sustainable in their current form. Uh, And so proceeding from that point of departure, that our cities are contested in terms of their environmental implications, uh, we wanted to see are there differences in the market city model and the people city model as it relates to all of these environmental implications? And we see that it does. Um, and I think in a few important ways. Uh, first, uh, we uh, examine just how people think about the environment. In Copenhagen, there is um, uh, a wide diffusion of the acceptance of climate change. In Houston, 
in our data, uh, it's a little bit more split. So a lot of people are accepting of the fundamental causes of climate change. That is, they have anthropogenic sources. It's human uh, caused. Uh, whereas about half the population is a little skeptical of climate change. That's not a trend we found in Copenhagen. So just the sheer baseline of how people think as sort of a foundation for any kind of social action or government policy uh, is going to be very different in the cities uh, for that reason uh, alone. And that gets borne out in the actual uh, environmental implications of the city. And so we uh um, we're able to analyze uh, the potential climate change impacts from very large facilities in the cities and found uh, that uh, Houston uh, emitted considerably more um, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions than uh, Copenhagen. Uh, that's even accounting for the fact that Houston is a little bit bigger of a city in terms of population than Copenhagen. Even so, um, uh, it's just dramatically more in Houston. Um and then we also saw this in terms of how local actors, particularly in government, but also in civil society beyond government, were thinking through these issues. In Houston, uh, the, uh, 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 the attention to environmental issues was comparatively constrained. I think a, a representative way of thinking about this is that the municipal government of Houston uh, has been energetic uh, relating to trying to do green building and things like that. Uh, so much of their newest uh, municipal buildings are trying to be LEED certified, which means sort of meeting, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a litany of benchmarks uh, for trying to be green. Um, but the catch to some of this is, is that the Houston municipal government is not necessarily trying to regulate other people beyond its government walls in terms of trying to lessen the environmental uh, footprints. Um, Whereas in Copenhagen, it's not just uh, as narrowly conceived. And in fact, uh, the city is trying to become the first carbon neutral world capital uh, by 2025. And in doing so, they're, they're having to make structural and foundational changes all across the city. So it's not just trying to build new green municipal buildings or retrofit uh, government halls, but it actually touches on private sector. It touches on all manner of aspects of the city, the transportation system, uh, all of these sorts of things in an effort to try to reach that goal. And we talk some about some of the contradictions that come along with uh, trying to be carbon neutral and how exactly do you calculate it that and things like that. But the point stands uh, insofar that Copenhagen is a place that is thinking about its energy uh, sources. It's thinking about transportation. It's, it's uh, thinking about waste, uh, thinking about um, uh, these things in a sort of much broader sense. And so when we think about environmental implications, that strong governance system uh, and that collective orientation of uh, the residents and government of the city uh, has um, <clears throat> is, is able to build a much more dramatic um, uh, 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 sort of uh, response to the deep environmental challenges of our time in a way that a market city just is not able to do so. It's comparatively individualistic. You have uh, a huge percentage of people who do not acknowledge the human sources of climate change. Uh, the, the barriers are real, and that is implicated in terms of Houston is one of the most polluted places in the United States. It's one of the places uh, that is... Um, 
uh, struggling to have sort of a wider governance system to respond to all of these um, environmental challenges of our time. And so in that way, uh, the environment ended up being, I think, one of uh, a key area of contrast that we saw uh, between the two cities. And short of completely tearing the city down um, and rebuilding Houston, is there any way that uh, in their future they can be more environmentally friendly? Is there anything that they can do uh, to reduce the amount of waste that is produced within the city uh, or just the general wastefulness that comes from uh, dense population in the city as well as uh, using vehicle that produces more carbons than what a bicycle in Copenhagen would? Yeah, uh, you know, I think there's a couple visions that could be supplied. And and really, the visions are probably going to come from the residents uh, themselves in an important way. So, um, you know, there's there's a couple ways to do it. So you might think of it in terms of just more radical change of just uh, trying to really fundamentally think the market, rethink the market city and undertaking uh, the sort of long term work of uh, trying to shift away from being a market city. One of the things we talked about in our concluding chapter is that, that that's really, really hard work. A city can't just uh, start an initiative and 18 months later uh, change from being a market city to a people city. Far from it. Um, history matters. Politics matters. Uh, the the uh, historical economy matters. So all of these things are are, are are putting sort of dramatic, more radical change up up against it in some ways, and so that's sort of you know one possibility uh, is to think through that. But it's going to take uh, you know something really um, foundational. More than that, though, you know, we talked a little bit about market cities trying to be uh, what we ended up terming a big-hearted market cities. The idea that uh, by being more attentive to social inequalities, by being more attentive to climate change. You know, maybe there's a way in which market cities can be more active on these fronts um, uh, while at the same time trying to do so in a more centralized uh, fashion. And so, you know, one of the things that struck us, uh, uh, take for example, uh, uh, social inequalities. There are uh, a number of exciting, important uh, civil society groups, nonprofits, and the like that are doing incredible work in Houston in an effort to uh, decrease social inequalities, whether it's providing economic opportunities for new arrivals to the city or uh, organizing around environmental issues. There is just a ton of work uh, that is going on in those ways. So the question is, how do you sort of bridge those sorts of work and make that more a core part of the market city just to begin with? Um, in doing so, it's actually going to move you a little bit away from the market city to have that sort of more collective sense, to have a more uh, a strong governance system that, that recognizes these issues. But um, uh, we don't think that the city necessarily needs to be torn down or anything like that, as, as you, um, uh, uh, you know, I think importantly mentioned, you know, this is we, we are building on top of what we already have. Um, but there are interesting paths uh, forward. And, you know, we try to leave it open and try to sketch what we think are some of those paths forward, but uh, largely uh, leave it uh, to the people themselves. And uh, you, I don't believe you mentioned anything in the book about ed cities, but uh, as cities start to build outward and, uh, and suburbanization of America, not a new, not a new um, issue at, uh, in any means, but uh, what, 
what impact does that have on the market city and the uh, and the people city? Because as they expand outward, not all little suburban areas or pockets within a city are equal. I think you did mention that about market cities, about the inequalities that exist, and they're much more drastic than what you might see in a in a people city. But building outward, and how does that impact the uh, the way in which we see market cities? Yes. Um, first and foremost, um, market cities are going to have more edge cities. They're going to build further outward. They're going to have uh, more of these types of places. Uh, you know, Houston is, um, you know, a dozens of miles across in almost every single direction. Uh, by contrast, in, in Copenhagen, I first time I lived there, I lived in a suburb and could bike into the central city every day, which would be a complete impossibility. Uh, in a place like Houston. So sort of using that anecdote, uh, the idea is uh, a market city is going to be characterized by far more um, edge cities and more of these sprawling places that go further and further out. And the implication of having more of those places is integral because they can uh, uh, expose and emphasize social differentiation across space. Uh, so by having... Um, more places um, like this and people being further away from each other, the part of the purpose is, uh, is to um, uh, uh, try to build advantages. People are trying to move to better school systems. They're trying to uh, build up their home values, things of this nature. And those are the sort of inequalities that we end up seeing across places that are characteristic of the market city. Uh, whereas in a people city, we're not seeing such uh, uh, gaping differences between property values from neighborhood to neighborhood or from municipality to municipality or suburbs to cities. Uh, there are differences, yes, uh, but they're not nearly as large of those as we see in the market city. And so that relates right back to that core foundation that market cities are higher in social inequality. And so the question is, how does that get embedded across physical geographic space? And it does so uh, through things like sprawl, through things like the creation of these edge cities, which are uh, uh, partly there um, to be sort of uh, <clears throat> a more fractured and differentiated uh, uh, social system. Uh, they're supposed to be not particularly integrated with each other because it's this individualistic culture where we can all sort of try to achieve what we can achieve. And that includes our own spatial attainment in terms of the places in which uh, we're trying to live. And, uh, and certainly a market city with sprawl is extending inequality uh, just through this, this, this physical uh, expansion of the city. And then this could lead to a conversation about tax base uh, and how taxes and how, the, how money is made to, uh, uh, to maintain uh, roadways, to maintain infrastructure, to maintain a, a style of living for a market city or for a people city. If I remember correctly, um, Kevin, you said that uh, in people cities, the tax base is, uh, is is extremely important for the well-being of the city. But in market cities, you wrote that uh, a large amount of the income is coming from large businesses and the uh, uh, and the money that they are donating to the city to help uh, uh, maintain infrastructure to help maintain the design of the city. Yes. And so taxes uh, end up being uh, another area of uh, contrast between the places. Um, and uh, one critical way to think about it is the inequality 
uh, within each city. And so in uh, Copenhagen, uh, there's sort of a progressive tax structure, but it's also a tax structure that uh, taxes everyone at relatively high rates. And that provides a, uh, a groundswell of money that can be uh, used for all of these sort of land use improvements and public space and uh, trying to be ambitious environmentally. Uh, all of those sorts of things are fueled in part by having this, this huge tax base just to begin with. Whereas in the market city, uh, it really just varies a lot. Uh, perhaps the one commonality is that taxes tend to be uh, relatively low, uh, but sometimes uh, the taxes, uh, the tax system itself is used to fund uh, that differentiation across space. And so in a place like Houston, uh, where as we counted it up, I think there's a, you know, uh, nearly 200 different governments. You think about municipal governments, school systems, uh, uh, all, all of these sorts of uh, county governments, all of these different government systems, each is drawing on a different sort of tax base from a different sort of place. And so a comparatively affluent uh, municipality that's on uh, the edge of the city or, or somewhere else uh, might be able to draw a lot stronger of a tax base in for its school systems and things like that. Whereas the municipality of Houston, which is not as affluent as many of its uh, suburban neighbors, and as well as many suburban municipalities in Houston are not um, uh, uh, as affluent either. So having these sort of distinctions between place to place to place will then lead to a lot of inequalities in terms of, well, what can that local government do? What sort of things can it provide? What kind of public spaces is it trying to build? And then secondarily, uh, it relates uh, especially to the education system uh, because then that can fuel educational inequalities. But market cities are highly tolerant of that. You know, that's sort of the uh, part of the local mantras is, is that if you can, um, uh, is that uh, there, we have all these inequalities across places and um, that's sort of okay. Um, certainly there are more than a few people who are contesting this educational inequality in Houston and other market cities all across uh, the world, but um, uh, but uh, it is built into the system that there should be these social inequalities in terms of the tax base, in terms of just the money that we're collecting together as a group of people and as a society and saying that we want to spend to try to further ourselves. That's different. It depends on where you live, especially in a market city. It doesn't depend on where you live as much in a people city. And in the two, you saw a difference in the balance of power in terms of strong central government or weak central government. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think one of the things that really struck us uh, especially is this idea of regional or metropolitan governance. Uh, increasingly, we've outgrown our single municipalities. And so maybe 200 years ago, when 3% of the world was urban, it made sense to think of a single city as being within a single government. Um, but the reality of the matter is, um, uh, is that huge numbers of people do not live in the central uh, municipality of a metropolitan area. They live in a suburban area. They live and an outlying ex-urban area, things like that. In Houston, uh, for instance, um, uh, it is projected that really any day now, it may, it may have just happened in 2018, it may happen next year, uh, that, um, uh, that um, 
that uh, uh, Harris County, that unincorporated areas in Harris County, which is Harris County is the central county, which contains Houston, but that unincorporated areas, areas that are not in a municipality, will be the most populous place in the Houston area. So eventually more people, uh, uh, again, this is at present, will live in uh, unincorporated Harris County, not even in a city than any other place. And so that's, in, in practice, that's about 2 million people. Uh, that's more people than live even in the city of Houston. And so um, uh, the sort of uh, implication that then comes from this is relating exactly to these strong governance and weak governance uh, issues is if you have a patchwork of governments, like I said, in Houston, nearly 200 municipal school uh, transportation authorities, what have you, if you have this patchwork of governance um, uh, across the city, then it can be very hard to deal with uh, and build towards collective outcomes uh, in the city. Copenhagen uh, has taken sort of a different tack. And so the national government, uh, for instance, in 2007, um, uh, instituted a, um, a wholesale um, uh, change that um, changed the number of municipalities in the country from about 300 to 100 and the number of what we might think of as counties or states from about 12 to 5. Uh, the effect of this was to create... Um, uh, uh, sort of more was to create sort of more nimble units by which um, uh, lo local uh, change can be carried out. And so there's actually a very strong national state in Denmark, which uh, actually provides quite a bit of the funding for municipalities, such as the municipality of Copenhagen and some of the outlying uh, suburban uh, areas. Um, but by having this structure where there are just fewer municipalities, there are uh, a, where regional inter cooperation is encouraged, whereas regional transportation systems are meant to bridge uh, uh, from place to place to place for across neighborhoods, across municipalities, even in Copenhagen, across countries, uh, across uh, uh, the Sound to, to Sweden. Um, and so um, having that ends up uh, playing a big role. And so um, uh, and, and all of those things are possible in, in part because of the strong governance system. Uh, that links people across these places in purposeful ways. Whereas uh, Houston has also been a, built in a purposeful way uh, to not have to live in a municipality uh, uh, or to live in a different area and put your taxes towards a better school system or something like that. So that's a weak, that's a weak metropolitan governance system, but it can be highly advantageous for the most socially, economically advantaged people within uh, the Houston area. And the interesting piece is you still see in both types of city, uh, people are generally satisfied as uh, as people who live in these cities. They are um, they are equally satisfied. Now, um, whether that has something to do with preference or whether that has something to do with general reality and uh, and uh, enlightenment of knowing that uh, that's where that person is going to be, therefore they can that they must be happy or satisfied with where they're living at. Is one and the other, and is uh, and would be useful for further research. Yeah, yeah, and and to be clear, you know, people, uh, you know, there's a lot of right reasons people can like their city. Uh, you know, it's a fairly general general question when you ask people, are you satisfied uh, with the city that you live in? Maybe they're thinking about the local government around them. Maybe they're just thinking about how they like their neighbors. Both of those things 
really, really matter and are important sociologically. So uh, it's it's not necessarily always that they even love the market city system or they love the people city system, uh, but they may uh, have a sort of closer attachment to place. And more than that, uh, people aren't able uh, to uh, pick and choose where they live. And uh, human beings are highly constrained in our um uh, choices of the, of the places that we're going to live. And that's especially true in terms of picking up and moving to another city. So it's not, we don't think about it in terms of, oh, people have sort of self-sorted into market cities or people cities. Like, there's not even uh, a kernel of truth to that sort of thing. So there's something about just having that sheer attachment to place, um, which urban sociologists have talked about for a long time, but um, that is probably driving a lot of that satisfaction just in and of itself. Well, and the tribalism that comes behind it, I think of uh, rural Iowa and when you have school systems that are uh, starting to decline in, uh, in number of enrollment, the public schools particularly, and then you see them combining with other cities, uh, it tends to be a, uh, a fight tooth and nail until the death of one of those schools, um, even when they are considering closing down because they don't have enough resources to stay, to keep their doors open. It's uh, it's something that these people take pride in. They take pride in their city. They take pride in their school. There's a history. There's a uh, there's a pride in place, as you were just talking about. Yeah, and one of the things we've tried to emphasize talking about market cities and people cities is that culture. Uh, it's it's a culture. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of going about and moving through your city. It's it's uh, the sort of logic and justifications that underline politics. It's that that. Um, uh, affects how you think about uh, your daily round. Uh, so all of those sorts of things matter, that people are really, really connected to the places in which, uh, in which they live. Um, and that uh, is uh, a powerful motivator for the sorts of actions you're willing to take or not willing to take, or even, um, uh, or even just uh, the sheer sort of things that may come to mind. Uh, in a city in terms of uh, trying to take some sort of action to do something about your city. It's really going to be affected by those underlying cultural things going on uh, within each sort of place. And we think a market city and a people city really furnish different cultural logics, different justifications that um, play a large role here. Well, we're all all out of time, but uh, one final question. What are you up to now? Yeah. Uh, Got a lot of exciting work moving forward, um, continuing to do uh, research on disparities uh, across metropolitan areas in terms of industrial air pollution. Uh, so that really relates to this book work because we're thinking about what makes cities distinct, what makes cities characterized by a ton of industrial air pollution versus characterized by comparatively less. So that's a, a major line of work I'm working on. Uh, and then another um uh, uh, item on my agenda is uh, thinking through uh, disasters and particularly urban flooding. So I've got some new work uh, on Houston and, and elsewhere uh, that's looking at land cover changes across time and how we're changing from more natural landscapes to anthropogenic ones. And what are the implications for social uh, inequalities within that? So the particular question I'm focusing on is how does the production of advantage spaces transforming natural landscapes into anthropogenic ones, uh, create advantage spaces that then also lead to disadvantages uh, in the form of environmental risks for uh, during times of urban flooding for disadvantaged groups. And so 
Um, this is a major part of what I'm sort of thinking about moving forward. And it relates to all of these issues we've been talking about um, concerning governance, concerning inequalities, uh, and uh, especially uh, differentiation across space. And then finally, these environmental implications. In the era of climate change, you know, the impacts from uh, natural disasters are just going to be heightened. Uh, and so what are we doing about it? And um, and what are the implications of it are going to be very important in terms of building more sustainable and more resilient societies moving forward. Do you see this as being a book project or a uh, more of an article? Uh, it's it's going to be, um, at this point, more articles at this uh, moving forward. Um, so uh, that's primarily where I'm going with it. All right. Well, I look forward to diving into those and reading more about them. Please let me know once they're out. Of course. Thank you.